Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. Welcome. We are interviewing this week our longtime friend Barry Hawkins, who is uh god how do you even describe barry i don't i don't know what he's a unicorn of of cultural change oh i like it yeah this needs to go on your business card unicorn Unicorn of cultural cultural change change. yes i i boy and you just pulled that right out of your head yeah that's uh, i like that he is he is somebody who comes into organizations is able to see what's holding them back and then help them through agile and uh, other things, help them move forward, increase velocity, um, get rid of roadblocks. So Yeah, and, um, and you've been doing a lot of uh, YouTube videos, so you can find his presentations online. Yes. But that actually brings me into a question that, um, so, you know, there's these two, I don't think model is the right word, but these there's this two approaches yeah. that you see in consulting, which is the carpet bombing approach, which is somebody comes in and they go, you're doing everything wrong. Here's the right way to do it. Yes. And then they leave and everybody forgets. And, you know, it's like, it, it's, it doesn't work. And then there's the way that I think I came to know mostly from Gerald Weinberg's workshops, which I used to take mm-hmm. when he was alive, and um, and his book Secrets of Consulting, which did I uh, did I turn you on to that book or did you know about? You were it the first. You were okay. you were the first. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I learned about that from the guy who used to run the first magazine I wrote for, Microcornucopia. Anyway, so my experience is that you go into a company and you have to understand what they're capable of in terms of change. And usually it's way less than anybody has ambitions for, you know, they're able to successfully change a few little things. And I remember it was you who first quoted to me from, um, uh, I think it was, well, I can't remember the name of the book, but you probably will. But it was basically um, if you don't have, um, an automated build system, um, automated testing, and um, God, what was the other thing? Oh, uh, version control. Then you you can't do anything else. You can't like move forward. You can't do agile stuff or anything. You have to have those. And so, like when you go into a company, yes. like the first thing that you do is go, oh, do you have these things in place? Oh, you don't. Okay, well, that's what we're going to work on because if you don't have those foundations, it's pointless. Anyway, and, so yeah, my no, question yeah, is, yeah. like, how do you, how do you, when you go into a company, how do you understand what they're capable of in terms yeah. of change? I think so. I, I some of this has to do with what I I believe uh, the three of us have in common. And so, for for those who don't know. Um, the the origin star, uh, story of this little adventuring party is <clears throat> I was uh, I was at a a large client in um, downtown Atlanta where I am from and grew up in early two thousand six and uh, I had 
software engineering is a second career for me. My first was in uh, the manufacturing space, industrial adhesive and marking systems for, for a decade. And I transitioned into software full-time in 2000. And as someone coming into the field late, as it were, in my professional journey, I was completely self-taught, but also always on the lookout for good books. Because the the good I, I read many books, but the good books were the ones that really helped me get to that next level. And Bruce's thinking in Java, uh, I had someone recommend it, you know, a peer at the Atlanta Java user group recommend it to me, uh, found out, well, and you can actually check it out online before you buy it. Um, because you could download it. Bruce was a bit of a bit of a pioneer in that way. And uh, as I read through it, it just, it spoke to me the way that I had read some other people's books who I won't name because I don't want to offend them and went all the way through and came to them and thought, still really don't know how <laughs> equals should be implemented. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, and the way Bruce would talk through interfaces, inheritance, um, equality, or is it equivalence? I don't Anyway, um, it just resonated with me. And I feel like this is someone who understands that the goal of this book is for me to come away being able to think in Java, that to, to reason, to, you know, act cognitively in, in Java. And I was actually reading his book and checking out his website at lunch, and there was this post there saying, I'm going to have a conference uh, called, and it's titled Programming the New Web, and it's going to be in Crested Butte. Now, that stood out to me because at that time, my younger brother had moved to Crested Butte about seven years prior. And my father had bought a house in Crested Butte a couple of years prior. So here I am thinking, you know, I only knew how to pronounce this town's name a couple of years ago. Um, mm. And now, and this guy lives there? What is up with that? And, oh, you know, I could kind of double this up like the family and I could go and it could be a finally get to see the Colorado house, get to see my brother and go to a conference. Blah. So I called up my, I called up my dad. And I'm like, hey, so there's this guy, uh, you probably haven't, I don't know if you've met him yet, but um, his name's Bruce and he lives in Crested Butte and there's going to be a conference. And I gave the address, not knowing that you don't have to give the address in Crested Butte for someone to know what you're talking about, you know? Uh, right. So I'm like, and it's at the, it's at this parish hall <clears throat> near, near Camp 4 Coffee, it says. And I know you guys talk about Camp 4 Coffee all the time. And, and my dad says, I'm sitting at camp for a coffee and I'm looking at the parish hall right now. So <laughs> yes, that is here. Um, and so I was like, I don't know. Well, scam. You're like, this can't be true. That yeah, Bruce now it's starting to, yeah. Now it's like, like you know, it might, so this might be a good experience or he might take my kidneys, uh, the first night. And so, um, so I took a, took a gamble and went and got to know Bruce and then f flash forward. And Diane uh, was there too. I think that Diane was Diane Marsh, who's been on the, the show. She was there. That's where we, we all met. Uh, we all met. That was the first meeting. Yeah, I don't know if you were there. No, no, I'll tell you. No, because then it, the story progresses forward. 
uh, <laughs> to August of 2006. And Diane and I were invited to the Enterprise Architecture Summit. What, what would be actually the final Oh, so this was before. Instance, okay. If you don't count the winter yep. sessions, the final instance of the Enterprise Architecture Summit. And I, you know, arrive in Crested Butte, getting all settled, and it's the time before day one, and I'm coming early, as I want to do. And there's this gentleman sitting in an Adirondack chair uh, out in front of Camp 4 Coffee, working on his laptop. And just the fact that there was a laptop, it's like, yeah, it's probably with me. Uh, and so I'm like, Hey, how's it going? He's like, Hey, I'm James. And that was uh, when James nice. and I met. Awesome. Uh, okay. And uh, yeah. And so, so then, you know, James and I were at that open space conference together, started to keep in touch after then. And so it was 2006. It's really the, the origin story for, uh, ourselves and, and Diane and what would then, you know, go on to become the roundup and other things. And when I met James, this is back, you know, James, you were in your RIA days. Yeah, that's right. The, I do. the days of the RIA cowboy. Yeah. And James has always taken a given uh, technology or developer experience and environment. And I feel done a really good job of making it accessible and approachable. Uh, I think, I mean, like, I think a recent example, James, is your um, Kubernetes the easy way. <laughs> Yeah, which is a play on uh, on Kelsey Hightower's which is Kubernetes the hard way. Which is a foil on Kelsey's. Through, I went through the Kubernetes the hard way one, and I was like, okay, that's cool because I understand Kubernetes, but there is an easy way. And so let's, uh, so I took, I just forked his repo on GitHub and just like basically deleted like 90% of it. And then that's Kubernetes the easy way. <laughs> and it, well, and it's, and I, I love that. And I, and I, I think that, tutorial is an expression of what I think is at the heart of your style and what's one of your superpowers, you know, in developer experience. And so me, the way that I approach development process, product development, and then how that, you know, inter interacts and has to exist within a company culture, the feedback that I've gotten over the years is I've seen this before. I've heard this before. I've done this. 10 different times in different places, but the way that you explained it helped me understand what it was supposed to be a bit more, uh, you know? And so when Bruce talks about, you know, how do you, how do you come into a place and, you know, consult, particularly if you're consulting on those topics of, you know, development process and product development and, and, uh, and then how that plays into company culture. I think the most important thing is to quickly assess where people are and meet them there. And I think mm -hmm. that's, I, I think, you know, Bruce's writing and, and James, you know, the work that you do, including your writing, I, I think you meet people where they are. And that's so important because if you tell people, you know, you must be at least this high in your bar to approach my offerings. Uh, We're in Colorado. Maybe you should say this tall. This tall. Yes, I say, this yeah, this tall or get this high and think you're this tall. Uh, you know, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> but it is you, you have, if you don't meet that, those people or, or those groups where they're at, it's, um, it's a bit of a dice roll. I mean, you can make a lot of money that way because you scare the crap out of them and they're like, oh my God, this person knows so much. Like, wow, we Let's really are off base. And like we one better... of the things that's, that's been frustrating for me with functional programming is that yes. it's, I think, unintentionally has 
a lot of gatekeeping. Yes. Where it's like, oh, you must understand category theory and yes. crazy amounts of math and all this to to do functional programming. And sometimes I think the community uh, to people that are not yes not this tall, yes. they they answer questions in such a way that makes people feel belittled and makes it feel makes people feel like oh yeah you're not that tall so you can't go on this functional programming ride yes. and that's been frustrating and so one of the things that that i've been doing and now doing a lot more with bruce and through the podcast sometimes is trying to trying to do what you're saying like like we can make these concepts approachable and and understandable by anyone we don't yes. have to we don't have to talk about monads in terms of category theory even though i kind of enjoyed doing that a Certainly. little bit but but hopefully hopefully we can make those functional programming concepts something that everyone can understand and we've we've been i think we've been making progress like we were at a, a little conference last week in marvel mm -hmm. which you would have probably enjoyed mm -hmm. um oh, wow. and we weren't we had no idea but there were a number of people who were really into functional programming and a number of people who were curious about it. And so we had some really good conversations and I could see how people who've like gone over the hurdle and, and gotten really into it really are attracted to, you know, going towards those details, the yeah. very details that scare people off yeah. and being able to see that and kind of understand it was like, okay, I see why you're going there. It, it makes you feel good, but that's not helping. Well, it's interesting like pieces as you get mm -hmm. in there, but, but that's also what unintentionally creates the gatekeeping does. Yeah. And so I think that's been one of functional programming's hardest things to, for gaining broader adoption. And so, yeah, it's mm -hmm. been super fun to work with Bruce and be like, okay, no, we are going to, we are going to try really hard to make these ideas attainable by anyone. Right. Right. No, without say, without you know, going towards math and listening to, you know, through happy path. Um, I do think that is one of, that is a narrative thread, uh, making functional programming accessible. And it is, I, and I'll say, I mean, again, as someone who's self-taught, you know, and came to, uh, computer programming, software engineering as a second career, the, uh, I came to call them uh, the deliberate gestures of condescension uh, <laughs> that I would hit as as I met. Like, I'll never forget being in Barnes & Noble. So like the late 90s through the early 2000s, my nights were going to Barnes & Noble and looking and seeing like what new books were there and which ones were worth buying. And um, I got my start in Microsoft languages uh, and uh, predominantly uh, visual basic for, for the first years, uh, because it was accessible and the things that I could get my hands on, you know, without forking out a ton of cash were available through visual basic. And I, and I started to hear about job and I'll never forget. I was in a, in an aisle, like looking at books and then there was this other dude there and, uh, he had a Java book and I'm like, um, oh, do you, you know, you program in Java? And he's like, yeah. And, and he, and me, and I can't even remember what shibboleth, uh, remember, I, we've talked about the shibboleth, you know, from, from Judaic history, you know, the secret password. It was how, um, I forget, I forget if it was the tribe of Benjamin, but, um, you know, they, they would ask people to say a word and they, the way that they pronounced it versus the way that their enemies would pronounce it would be different, but the people wouldn't know. So if you said it wrong and then they killed you, I think, 
Um, but that's kind of the experience of trying to interact <laughs> with certain software engineering um, communities. And so I clearly did not know that, did not say the password right. And he's like, you wouldn't know, you know, it's, you'll look, you may get there someday and just walked off. And I, and I was, I was at yeah. Barnes and Noble with a friend and uh, I went and sat down. I was like, I don't, you know what, getting into programming, I love programming, but so many of the people that I meet in it are and, you know, I, um, I don't know, I don't know if they're all like this, you know, and, and it was, right. and so I, I have, I have, um, gravitated towards communities in programming that I found more, um, open and well, I mean, if I hadn't found the Atlanta Java user group, I probably would have bailed on Java yeah, because they were all so, you know, Burr Sutter, like what he did there for years. Um, they were so, so welcoming inviting. and inviting. Yeah. Um, and I think with functional programming, it hit, I, functional programming makes sense to me. In fact, when I first heard about, well, not first heard about, but when I first really started to think about functional programming, it made a lot of sense to me because it resonated with Eric Evans in Domain Driven Design, his side effect free functions. Yeah. Mm. It seemed to be like, hey, side effect, side effect free functions is endemic to functional programming. And that's a good thing because like yeah. when I worked with Eric doing domain driven design coaching, the amount of effort we would have to do to try to get people to write side effect free functions in Java was no small feat. Mm -hmm. um, and so it just ostensibly philosophically, it made sense. And when I heard I didn't know kind that, of the, that Eric Evans and domain driven design had any concept of, of, side effects and oh I, yeah you I need to go reread it oh you should I totally go to the chapter on side effect free functions huh. and to me whoa uh yeah i think I, for, i'm pretty sure for our book i, I could yeah <laughs> i could oh, try and look it up right behind right him behind him yeah right next there to bruce's is. thinking in java though um yeah i have the the books of people who've uh influenced me the most is actually what oh. i line the back of my video oh, backdrop with and bruce's um I, I have the version of thinking in java that bruce signed it's unfortunate because the condo that we lived in in santa monica uh where there was it was like a greenhouse the sun has bleached right. out the cover so if the color looks off apologies um <laughs> i can't that's a bit see of a sidebar there's nothing <laughs> nothing more fun on a podcast than having someone describe a visual situation but yeah. um but functional programming made a lot of sense but as i tried to approach it the amount of yeah, intellectual arrogance was that, you know, it's, and I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, I have done, I have been someone who's done that in my own, you know, field and own endeavor. And then you start to see the impact of it. And, and you have to ask yourself, what am I here to do? What am I trying to do here? Um, because if I say to myself that I'm trying to help more people do this thing, but I'm constantly alienating, mm -hmm. driving off and making people feel less than in the way that I'm trying to bring them in, you know, you can be right and very alone. Uh, and the so surest way to do that is to be in somebody else's candle it. to make yours brighter. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, so okay. it's, so it's one of the things that I've liked as I've, you know, um, you know, listen to you guys dialogue about uh, functional programming uh, in the podcast. Yeah, it's mm. yeah, it's been fun for us. Ideally, well, 
I know all of us have done that kind of thing in our life. And ideally we've all come to be embarrassed about it later yeah. in our lives. It's not, you know, yeah, it's just normal. human. That was the best we could do at the time as awkward as it turned out to be doing the best with what we had and where we were at the time. Yep. Mm -hmm. Thank, thank so, heavens for growth. <laughs> so. mm -hmm. Yeah. And for friends that can help you see those things, help you along mm -hmm. the way. Yeah. I, I have to say, I, uh, I, and I will say that the two of you, you know, there have been, uh, you know, I can think of notable moments where things that the two of you said or did uh, helped, you know, uh, nurture that realization and awareness in me. So I'm thankful for that. Ditto. Yeah, we've yeah. all had some really yeah, interesting. I mean, it's it's really satisfying to be able to talk with someone who gets you. It's like mm -hmm. just uh, I don't know because. Anyway, it just is. Um, so it, you're kind of now restarting your consulting business. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, having moved, uh, you know, transitioned out of the last place, I am I'm going back into consulting. And the the last nine years has been an interesting experiment. So um, I guess in a nutshell, transitioning from the industrial space into software engineering. When I went from the manufacturing sector and, and what is basically a mechanical engineering endeavor, and I got into software, I was blown away. Uh, disillusioned, one might say. It is. <laughs> at how non-engineering, I mean, like when I learned about people like, you know, programming and developing with the debugger open, setting all the breakpoints and crap, you know, and trying to do that myself and, I had the I, I had the fortunate mental model of having to make systems in the you know packaging and marketing systems in the physical world. So I have always had a highly observable, short feedback loop on what I was trying to do, because when that sheet of steel is flying by at 120 feet a minute, and you have to put a barcode on it, it is real easy to figure out whether or not you're doing what you want. Because if that barcode reader downstream doesn't read that, it's not working. Uh, and you need to make the changes to make that happen. And then, in, you know, I transitioned into software. And it was such an eye-opening, you know, the, the plasticity and the malleability of software also allows us to cover a multitude of sins in far, as far as like what we're not observing and our ability to make up for it later, you know, or try to make up for it later. And so I... Um, I did, you know, in, in the manufacturing world, my first, my break into software was I, I wrote to software applications um, that ran in, in factory floors. Uh, pro tip for anybody, if you're a time traveler, do not go back to the late 90s and write industrial manufacturing applications in Visual Basic. Um, <laughs> hacking together a serial a driver. Things are like flying off like the... Oh. You know. It was, I, that was where I first internalized, okay, there are limitations. This language is not suited for everything. You know, you, you hear people talk about, you know, Visual Basic, it'll solve 80%. And I know I'm talking in a past era, but, you know, Visual Basic will solve 80% of the problems. Trying to use it for the other 20%, you'll go insane. Uh, and I did, actually. I, uh, because my second application was... Um, uh, if you remember when photo services were a big deal, yeah. you know, like Shutterfly and all that, yeah. um, a cl 
we ended up with a client who um, they wanted us to deliver a system where they had the web app where you put in your photos and captions. And their killer thing was you actually could put like 254 characters of description because most things, you know, you just got the date or you could put like a little, you know, phrase. Well, they had the ability to do like a little paragraph. And this system had to take the photos in sync with how they had been uploaded and they would, um, on the photo, they would print a 2D barcode below in the white space that would be trimmed off once they processed the photo. But I had to write an application that used, that interfaced with a hardware-based 2D scanner, read that barcode, decoded it into a string, fed that string into an inkjet printer to then generate a message binary and print while this, and this stuff was flying by, I, I can't remember, I think we got it up to like 30 or 40 feet a second, which was wow. fast for what we were doing. But yeah. I, this is again, first two, first two software. It's a very formative experience signing myself up for this. Yeah. Um, because- well, and, and back then there were no like APIs you could call. No, God no. Very few libraries to use. Like I found, so I found, a book for mail order that was uh, writing serial drivers in Visual Basic. There was one book in the world that I could find. Using that and not sleeping for three days and hacking together a serial driver to interface that, it it nearly killed me. But it, it also taught me a lot about, okay, here's how software engineering is similar and different uh to my my prior life but the oh my god the lack of observability of the system was maddening like trying to debug that serial driver and setting breakpoint in it i was like this is i gotta find a better way than this and so i then transitioned fully into software i wrote those two applications in my you know the end of my time in manufacturing and then switched over to software full-time and that was when i first learned of of waterfall when someone wasn't referring to the land feature and as i watched that kind of opacity you know people programming in that degree of opacity at scale you know with with waterfall i started to really question my career (laughs) transition like what have i done to myself in some ways, waterfall comes from the manufacturing world. Is that right? Or like, it, is there um, a it comes? There? Uh, it comes from a misunderstanding of the manufacturing world. That's okay. what yeah. You know, what I tell yeah. software people is the the <laughs> the I hear people say about manufacturing who've only ever been in software is hilarious to me <laughs> because stuff changes all. all the time, and you get no heads up. Like there be a raw material, right? That where, this was a real story. Um, my, I worked with my father, the, the decade that I was in mechanical, I, I worked with my father in a, in a company he started and we, we designed and sold turnkey systems, uh, for manufacturing to print and adhese things. And there was, a, there was a, a system that we had that was built on a particular class of adhesives that were really effective. And we were living our life. We had sold uh, dozens of these manufacturing systems that were producing tens of thousands of little carpet sample trays, actually. Uh, and, um, we suddenly get, start getting calls from the manufacturers, like all of the carpet. So this 
truck just got to Houston and all of the carpet has fallen out of the trays. So like, you know, this crap is being shipped, you know, it's been created and it's being shipped all over the U.S. And long story, at the end of it, what we learned was the chemical manufacturer who made the adhesive, they had changed the formula of the adhesive without telling anyone. And that happens in manufacturing all the time. And you just become CSI manufacturing edition trying to find out, all right, who did what in it, in that particular story, here, here's how wild manufacturing is. Um, and here's how many parallels from software there are. It turned out that that adhesive was made, the, the core active ingredient in that adhesive was made from a byproduct of a really messy, horrible um, petroleum refinement process. And so they had lakes of this sludge out in rural areas and they found a use for it in this adhesive. But then when I, they used up all the sludge lakes, um, there wasn't any more of it because it was, it was actually a byproduct of a bad thing they had stopped doing. Um, so manufacturing wow. has way more, way more similarity to software than we might <laughs> realize. Uh, it, but the lack of observability and feedback loops is what sent, and then seeing like it at scale and waterfall is what led for me to begin searching for, oh my God, there has to be another, like surely to God, not everybody's doing it this way. And that started in earnest in 2001. In 2002, I started to learn a bit about XP. By 2003, I then learned XP, about- Okay, say what XP is, because I've read a lot. Extra, oh yeah, thank you. Uh, XP, it's not, uh, I'm not talking about what happens in Skyrim as you kill things. Okay, um, it's not about uh, the XP, version. extreme programming. Uh, you know, the, and agile, for, for those who don't know, when people talk about agile, which I'm sure we'll traverse into at some point, yes. agile is an umbrella term uh, coined in 2001 for a constellation of methodologies and experiments and approaches that, that groups of software, pr predominantly software engineering practitioners had undertaken because they too felt like boy, this whole waterfall model is a horrible fit for the craft of actually making software. And uh, XP Extreme Programming, uh, you know, headed up by Kent Beck, but, a, you know, a number of, of luminaries there. Um, it was one of the first. Uh, Scrum was in, well, anyway, XP in 1995, Scrum in 1994, but all these pockets, you know, Crystal, ASD, DSDM, um, they uh, all Star were, methodology from Sun. Star, yep. Yeah, um, was there was a, a whole like, you know, technology. constellation of, of these experiments. And so XP was one of them. And um, yeah, I started hearing I, about I all wanna, of that. Hang on, I want to interject something as long as we're talking about Waterfall. I just read a really nice article by Kevlin Henney that he just yes. put up where he talks. Oh, I think I sent you a link to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where he talks about um, why, you know, where... Uh, waterfall does work. And so it kind of explains, oh, here's, you know, it's not just massively stupid. It's like, no, no. oh yeah, within a lot, if you have a lot of constraints, it, it can work and this is why it exists at all. And I found that to be very useful. So it's, anyway, go on. Yeah, no, Kevlin, uh, and Kevlin's a really good historian. He, Craig, uh, Kevlin, Henny, and Craig Larman to me are some of the um, most effective historians of software methodology. Um, but it's, yeah, it's really interesting. I, after some years in, in Agile, I began to myself just forensically 
try to figure out how did we get here, you know, and um, the um, waterfall as a methodology, you know, it's it, the name actually, the name waterfall in the waterfall paper that was written in 1971, 1970, um, it, uh, the word waterfall is nowhere in it. Um, the name came from the third diagram in the problem statement. And that diagram is actually part of articulating the problem statement of misunderstandings about software. But people took that, went with it, and it got the name waterfall because it's like, oh, look, the diagram has rectangles going, you know, diagonally from top left to bottom right. And they're like, look, it looks like a, like everything just... It's like Cascade. water, everything just rolling downhill, like water or and like the further away you are from the top, you know, or, or the further away you are from the bottom, the easier your life is. Um, and so, uh, yeah, waterfall, it, there's some really interesting quotes. Uh, one in, in, in a, a paper from like 65, 1965 by Herbert Bennington, uh, then interesting quotes in... Um, Boy, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name. I say it all the time. Uh, Royce, um, uh, the author of um, uh, the author of um, Winston W. Royce, I think it is uh, the author of the Waterfall Paper. But you, when you actually go and read the papers, they didn't believe it. it, it Waterfall was originally called top-down programming. Uh, that was the, the cool term from the mid '60s. Uh, into the early 70s was actually top-down programming. And most of the diagrams actually drew it from the, the rectangles were skinnier and they ran uh, vertically down and it was called top-down. And so when when uh, Royce, Winston W. Royce took the alternate approach and like spaced the boxes out, which arguably is more readable, waterfall came from, oh, it looks like a waterfall. Mm. Um, so it's it's really wild to dig into the history of how we came to do so many of the things <clears throat> that we do but even you know in those people the 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 navy paper from the 60s um and the um royce's paper from 1970 you know royce he, i mean he in in the opening he says this is these are reflections on my um the past nine plus years of working on software systems as part of the lunar landing mission Huh. And so just think about that. Okay. So yeah, definite hardware and software integration. The, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, you're integrate. You don't get an integration test. That was all assembly language. And he, and, and even there, that's, what's wild is to go back to these papers in the sixties and seventies, because they'll say you have to do this in units and you have to have tests that affirm that each of the units is working before you move on to assemble it into the, the larger system. They had short, tight feedback loops. They uh, they actually did, they didn't call it refactoring, but they did refactor. They would say, implement it once and go back and implement it again. Uh, so they were iterating even then. Where did Waterfall go wrong? Where did Waterfall go wrong? Oh, heavens. It's, uh, well, it's when we started calling when did it we Waterfall. Fall off the cliff? When did the Waterfall fall off the cliff? The Waterfall went off the cliff, <clears throat> and many people with it, when... It got the name Waterfall. It's the uh, to me the Waterfall paper, and I, you know, James, I was thinking about when you were talking with Sharon in the episode on you know Vibe yeah. and uh, Heroku, yeah, yeah. and you were talking about the 
Well, I, what I took away from what you all were saying is it's important to write things down, but it, there's a peril in writing things down. Yes. Because well, once it, it's written down. It's like a metaphor where uh, I read a book, uh, uh, it was a philosophy book about metaphors. And it yes. said that metaphors are helpful because they help us to constrain the way that we see something. But naturally that also hides some reality that we can't yes. see anymore. And so, so I think you're right that maybe like the name was, gave us a metaphor for this thing, which then helped us to understand yes. it, made it something easier to grasp, but then also hid a bunch of reality or something. And, well, it's like any abstraction. You have to be careful of what you're hiding and what you're exposing. Yes. Yeah. Well, and that's it, yeah. so waterfall when we named it waterfall, maybe, uh, the abstraction, we lost something important. It's, <laughs> it's a, so the waterfall paper is a short paper. I don't think it's much over 10 pages. It's a white paper from a conference. This is, you know, in the days oh. before slides, right? Yeah. Um, so it's relatively brief. Here's where waterfall went wrong. The waterfall that everyone talks about and the way that they diagram and model it is from the third diagram in the problem statement. Yeah. It is not from the 10 recommendations that make up the second half of the paper. If you look at the 10 recommendations that make up the second half of the paper, they are all 100% compatible with what we espouse today as incremental, iterative, agile before the dilution, you know, uh, the good, it's the good stuff. So, but and it's, you know, there's, there are two things that I think of. Yeah, but there's no word for those things that I can like wrap my head around. So, well, so, so that's why I that's why I just, yes. you know stuck on page the third diagram is because it had a name. <laughs> it had a I name and it had a picture, and it's where you know W. Edwards Deming said in the fifties or sixties, if you give something a name, people will expect you to hand it to them in a box. <laughs> and I also think of Eric Evans talking about in domain driven design, talking about models. And what makes for a useful model? And what makes for a useful model is it's an abstraction that suits the purpose that you're trying to, uh, to for which you're trying to use it. But our penchant as humans is to want to take an abstraction or a model. We crave simplification uh, and we will try, we will do our dam damnedest. I don't think that'll get an explicit tag um, to, um, to try and over apply an abstraction. And that's the, that uh, I think uh. the trouble with waterfall is one, what everybody seized on was part of the problem statement, not the recommendations. And that problem statement, if you are in a command and control hierarchy, the waterfall model, the part of the problem statement that they seized on is incredibly seductive. Mm -hmm. The idea that I can declare a direction and then we're going to spend enough time laying out a plan and we will follow that plan. And nothing will change. Flawlessly and nothing will change. Because it's because if you go to the if you look at the third diagram and then you go to the fourth and the fifth, the fourth and the fifth actually show. Now here's where that goes wrong. It actually shows like, but you get to this step and you find out that there's something wrong, you know, it's important that each of these steps be tightly coupled and that you iterate between each step. It actually says iterate between each step. And it says, and two, you can do all that right and still get to the, the test before go live, you know, the test before ship. 
and find not that there was a there was a, a bug in the code, uh, but rather some of what you were trying to do was not what you should have been trying to do. And then he says, now, therefore, do these 10 things. And the 10 things are all 100% compatible with, you know, incremental, iterative, you know, agility, all that. Um, but everybody stopped at the problems. It's, so for me, the moral so in of- In some ways, what you're saying is that it's, it's like Conway's law, but it's Barry's law. And it's that your, your methodology, your software methodology also models your organizational structure. Uh, oh, uh, oh, ab absolutely. And the, you know, that's what led me to write when, and I talked about it with, and actually a lot with, with you guys for years before I finally wrote it and put it on the internet. Cause God knows when you, once you put something on the internet, it's like buckle up. But, um, you know, <laughs> when I wrote, um, the myth of commoditized excellence, Excellent you know, the, the myth of commoditized excellence is my expression of this is the, this is the perilous journey that anyone trying to do a good and helpful and share a good and helpful thing faces is that the people who benefit the most and with whom the thing you're doing, the, the, with whom it resonates the most are oftentimes the people you have to watch out for the most because they will take that thing and try to over apply it, uh, evolve it to their, begin to morph it. I, I was about to say, pervert it to their own means, you know, weaponize it really. I mean, that's, uh, that's yeah. a lot of what happened with, um, with, with agile. It's what, it's what happens with the minute you write a culture statement, it, culture statements are some of the most immediately weaponized things in a company. It's, uh, yeah, I can get in a lot of trouble talking about that, but, uh, anyway. well, I would say, so this is something I've been kind of slowly developing, which is, and it may exist already because there's lots of cognitive biases, but I don't think I've seen it, which is what I call the simplicity bias, which is oh, this yeah. desire to, you know, simplify everything. And I don't know if you know, if you've looked into um, Occam's Razor. Yes. And if you've seen Occam's Razor, like represented in popular media, they'll say, Oh, Occam's Razor says that the simplest solution is the right one. Mm, and it yeah. doesn't, I looked it up, doesn't say that at all. No. It says if you have two, uh, you know, two or more approaches to take, try the simplest one first. It's just a strategy. And it makes sense it's, because it's like, well, you'll learn a lot. If it fails, you can do the more complicated one. But if it works, then you haven't wasted all that time. Totally yes. different. But but this desire for simplicity is so great that, I mean, I think that's what gave us economics is this idea yeah. that, oh, there could be equations that predict the future of mm -hmm. the economy. Let's pretend that there are, and then we'll go from there. And it came from, all of these things come from, and I think- Let's the, pretend that humans are simple. Human, humans are yes. simple. They got some basic laws and we'll just guess what they are and then you know go on from there. And, you know, those turned out to be completely wrong. But but my point was that um, that I think one of the things that maybe the whole Agile Scrum movement didn't take into account was psychology. But oh, they heavens. didn't wrap that in. Like how it would be weaponized. Or... Well, or, oh, yeah. or that it would be that, you know, there, there were all these other factors and it was yes. just no... All you have to do is, you know, rapid iterations and simple, 
you know, simple oh. this and simple that, and then it'll work great. And I feel like you encountered in a lot of your consulting jobs, yes. you, people, you know, falling prey to this. Anyway, well, say yeah, something. Ab- absolutely. That. That's, um, I remember talking to Esther Derby and I were, um, there was a speaker event at, uh, the Norwegian Developer Conference Oslo 2012, June of 2012. And we were, it was a long, it was a long, but very pleasant walk, uh, through, um, Oslo from the, uh, venue to where we were going on this boat. And we went out into the fjord and had these really cool sandwiches and stuff. Um, and, uh, Esther and I were talking about some of the challenges of helping teams and organizations succeed with their, you know, desire for more agility. And it's, we were talking about the history of, of lean, uh, and just the, the things that led to lean and, and basically what, and I remember Esther saying, well, essentially at the heart of it is the, the agile ecosystem stumbled into lean just by deductive reasoning, looking at um, let's try something, see what works, throw away what doesn't. And at the end of the day, it turns out that having small autonomous self-organizing teams that have a highly observable work system that they can inspect and adapt, uh, generally works out really well. But what happened as, and this is where, uh, agile have agile is both, um, beautiful and strong and weak in that it uh came to be and really took its initial shape and it shaped for some time largely only with um software engineers involved who didn't have to deal with the rest of what's involved in being an organization so as they began to and i talk about this in some of the training that i give is one of the things in and oh god if martin and I hope they all don't get mad, but I, so I'll just, me as someone coming to the party late and then observing and just, tra- and, and having the, the great fortune to talk to some of the people who, who wrote that manifesto and who were part of, you know, XP and Scrum in, in the early days, as I, in my amateur forensic archaeologist, you know, forensic sociologist try to put together what happened here. Um, when they went to try and share what they were doing, I think one of the things that the initial XP and Scrum, but also Crystal, ASD, DSDM folks, one of the things that they took for granted was the culture that they had. As, mm-hmm. as a group of self-selecting um, programmers who often um, did work together, were brought into places and airdropped in to work together, and then they would go off and go work somewhere else together, or maybe just some of their other buddies this time. But they were sort of airdropping in with their own little cultural orb. And they were a small subset of the general programming Of the general programming population. Now, when they then tried to take that and say, now, other people can do it, most of what they captured and documented were the discreetly observable uh, events and artifacts. Not realizing the water that they were in. <laughs> uh, not realizing the water at all. And so in, in, a, in one of my trainings that I have uh, called Agile Foundations, which is focused on Agile at the team level, you know, that, the, the, the nuclear, the cellular unit. Um, 
I have a whole section on the underlying cultural assumptions of Agile, because what I found over years, um, you know, now coming up to 20 years of doing this at everywhere from five person startups to fortune 100 companies is what most people are trained on or they hear is simply the mechanics of agile and 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 it's presented to them as take this repeat these mechanics no matter where you're sitting it'll be awesome 100 not true if you look at the people who go back and look at the people who created these things Look at what they were doing then. Look at what they were what they're doing now. Most of them are luminaries. They're the, they're the people who gave us refactoring and unit testing and continuous integration and continuous delivery. They were the persons on the teams. So to think that you could just take the discreetly observable, like plan a sprint, have a daily standup, review it, have a retrospective. Um, you can't just drop that in anywhere. Like I'll, the, the environment that that this was that you're doing this in, um, yes. and all the other forces that are acting on you. It's like it, you know, it's like all of a sudden we're like, oh, gravitational waves. Like there are other things that are like having yes. an impact on on all of this stuff that we haven't admitted or even yes. been aware of. Well, and I would say that there's also a fundamental. Uh, I guess I'd call it a psychological thing that we don't usually talk about, but is is underneath all of this, which is that we have this belief that we can make, you know, if we have, if the meeting is long enough, or if we think about it long enough, I fall prey to this all the time, that we can figure it out. Yeah. We can figure out the solution ahead of time. Yeah. And so this tempting. shift is more than just, oh, oh yeah, that little simple thing you've been doing it wrong. No, this is like a fundamental belief system that needs to be changed. And if everybody is stuck on this idea, which we mostly are, of, oh yeah, we can figure it out ahead of time, then we're going to end up with something like waterfall. Yeah, or or the you know the perversions of you know agile yeah. and scrum that have one of the first things that I ask you know companies and, and people when they first want to talk to me about this stuff is I'll say great so what is how do you approach planning and projection right now hmm. and I just you know have them describe it to me and I say oh great okay um, what would you say your comfort level is with uncertainty and volatility mm -hmm. And, you know, and I have it as an open and, you know, just like, just talk to me, just, you know, unpack that for me. I'm just, You're I'm trying curious. to understand and, the environment and all the forces that are acting that people are maybe not aware of. It, yes. You know, because they, to your point about the water, they very often are not aware of, of the water. And I'll give you a really polarizing or, or I guess extreme example is I was in, uh, I was delivering that Agile Foundations training in a, uh, yeah, large and successful organization, still successful this over a decade later. Um, and I was, um, I got to this part about underlying cultural assumptions and there's, whenever I give this material, the first part I'm going through, like the origin story, you know, of agile and then the, uh, roles, events, artifacts, you know, the discreetly observable things. And then I get to, all right, let's pick up with underlying cultural assumptions, the palpable tension in the room. When I get to that part, you can just hear people's sphincters torquing, you know, when, when I, when I start to, to say these things and I, I was in one group, um, 
like I say, big, big, successful company, really, I mean, arguably like cool company culture kind of dealio. And I get to the part where I talk about motivated, self-directed teams. I talk about that as one of the underlying uh, cultural assumptions of Agilist, that you have people who have the desire and have the degree of autonomy and personal accountability to want to show up and deliver outcomes. They understand that, you know, we're here to deliver outcomes, not to just suck down smoothies and occasionally go play foosball. Like we're, we're here to deliver an outcome. We want to have fun, but it's, this is not day camp. You know, this is work. And, um, I was talking about motivated self-directed teams and like the degree of self-organization and the, how there's an, the, the trust contract in, in the effective use of these things is for leadership or the people who are, who have to request the outcomes to focus on requesting an outcome, but then to afford the team, the people doing the work, the agency to determine the approach to, to accomplishing the outcome. And that then the other side of that is, of course, accountability for the outcome. And there was an executive in this session, because I always mix when I'm, you know, to Bruce's question at the start around what, how do you assess? One of the reasons, one of the ways that I do is I make these sessions intentionally a mix from executive down to, you know, individual team members, because I want to see how they interact with one another. And so we were going through this motivated self-directed teams in this uh, VP actually stop. He's like, Hey, so, so you're, you're saying that we should just tell people like, this is what you need to accomplish and just let them go accomplish it. I said, exactly. That's Thank crazy. you. He was <laughs> right. affirming me. Um, he's like, you can't, these idiots, you can't trust these idiots to do anything. If you don't stay, if you don't ride their backs, they, they won't get done. And it, <laughs> we've got 45 minutes left of the class. You know, it's like, Right. Where oh. do we go from here? You you just right. said you don't trust, and that you I mean you you actually called them idiots, uh, and you have said well, he that was you, quoting Adam Smith. <laughs> you intend to ride their backs. You know the path forward right. is you're going to ride their backs, but we're talking about preserving agency, helping you know develop uh, developing a building a t sense of team cohesion. What so a it's, delightful place to work. Yeah, yeah, and and like I say, this now this is a place. Uh, I'm not about to say it, but you know, if if you knew the place, and if you knew the place back then, to think that an executive would would have said that out loud in a setting with some of the people that not even being aware that there's something wrong with saying that <laughs> that, that that is that's that is like oh my god yeah like how what are you what are you doing um, even if that's what you're thinking what are you doing um, so uh, yeah and that's in a lot of I think at the end of the day, and this, this is one of the things I also talk about with, you know, a product development approach or methodology is if the heart, it's important to get to the motivation. What is the, because leader, because in general, when people are looking to take a different approach, you, you want to look at, uh, f for the people who are paying for this, for the people who are paying for you to come in, what are their motivations for, for bringing you in? And if you talk to them and it sounds like, ooh, this, this Agile seems like a more effective way for me to squeeze more blood from my little patch of turnips, um, that's not going to go well. Um, you know, when I, when I encounter that initial conversations, I'll tell them, I can understand your interest and appeal, but I will tell you that this is probably not a good use of your money because um, I, I don't see this going very well. Huh. Seems like maybe we need a 
Ted Lasso software methodology. <laughs> you know, what? It, it, I love I I love the more recent episodes of Ted Lasso because I think Ted Lasso is so what people are see have seen in the first season and and in the episodes up until about two or three ago is so compelling. But I think what's interesting in recent episodes in the path forward is as as Ted has to now become a whole person and we have to see, you know, the rest of Ted, I I wonder how many how many of the um effusive posts uh you know that I'm seeing on LinkedIn are, are going to persevere because I, I do think we that that desire for simplicity, we also want people to be simple. We just just bring your best self, bring your bring your best side to to work or discussions about things. Don't talk about what makes you anxious or the you know the the damage you've suffered that that may color or make certain kinds of collaboration or trust hard for you. Um, and that's it's it, there's a term hard. that I like a lot, which is you may have heard this toxic positivity. Oh, huh. toxic positivity is one of the most subtle cultural poisons mm-hmm. um, because in, in toxic pos- positivity is it is requesting that you be not your whole self but in such a polite way that seems rude to refute and and to me that make that's one of the things that makes it the most subtle awful <laughs> things uh-huh. it's like hey I'm just completely lovable and approachable. Will you please just be a husk of yourself? Only the good bits, please. Um, you know, it's like, whew, that is, you know, you look like a bad guy pooping on that, but but you need to because it's not healthy. Um, so uh, anyway, that's there. Um, so you're one of the... Your recent articles is the the four outcomes of an effective development process, and I'm yeah. curious if you could just recap those for us. Absolutely. Um, and this is where what I found myself needing to do in talking about you know development process, product development approach. Um, I over the years have needed to be able to concisely express because again, if there's any lesson I took away from the waterfall paper is your problem elaboration statement can't go too long or people will think you're talking about the solution. <laughs> so um, with, with, um, with de- effective development process, there are four key outcomes that we're looking for. One, we want to cultivate an understanding of a team's schedulable capacity. Because at the end of the day, most software teams, you got a group of people asking them to do some things to some software either make it or evolve it, right? And one of the, for me always, one of the most anxiety-inducing parts of programming is having to tell people how big I think something is and how long I think it'll take. Yeah. Because I immediately, like, I'm then faced with my own comfort with the unknown. And, but it's and with just an estimate. We're not going to hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> but even when I know that, even when I've had situations where it's a safe space. I still feel, I can still feel my butt tighten up, you know, when it's like, is this two story points or 20? Um, Well, why are you asking me for these schedules if you don't care about it? Well, and and you do care. Well, and that's the thing is 
the, you know, we do care about it. it it's just, mm-hmm. but how, how real are we going to be about how precise we can be? And that's where I, you know, I talk about, I don't talk about a sprint commitment like Scrum does. I talk about the projection. Because even with two weeks, you're projecting. You're projecting what you think it's going to be. There's still stuff you don't know, even inside of 10 business days. Um, yeah, where, and so, where I feel fear or anxiety around commitment, the word commitments mm-hmm. or yeah. um, you know, giving somebody a estimation on, on when a project's going to be done is I know that I'm going to have to go back to them and be like, I was wrong about that. Yes. And that like knowing that I'm going to have to go back and admit that I was wrong about something. Yeah. Like just the anxiety that it, I think. Is hard. Well, yeah. and we tend to want to, you know, be a little bit optimistic about these things. Right. Or yeah. a lot optimistic. I'm There's, usually oh, a lot optimistic. Yeah. A great, great amount of optimism. Um, and uh, so what I, so the first key outcome, cultivate an understanding of schedulable capacity, because the more, uh, the more comfortable a team is with directional commitment and projection, and the more comfortable we are with when we, with this, and this is another thing that I reinforce with teams is when we have to come and say, all right, this is larger than, than we thought it was going to be. One of my first questions is, oh, well, unpack for the rest of us. What have you learned? What are we learning? And that there's almost always an a awesome answer to that. It's like, oh, well, it turns out that one of the APIs that we call, it has a caching layer that we can't affect. And so we're having to work around an immovable object underneath us. It's like, oh my God, that's so great to know. As opposed to, so you didn't make the sprint? No, they didn't fool. But if you, ju- <laughs> if you beat on that, what you're, what you're reinco- reinforcing there, when you do that, what you encourage people to do is hide what you found. Mm-hmm. Hide what you found, yeah. pretend it's okay. And that um, is just, uh, it's not a good thing. So the second, second key outcome is building cohesion. That is, you should, effective development process should reinforce and create the space for a team of people to understand that they really are a team and they belong together and that they have a purpose in being together and that understand, particularly in cross-functional teams where there's more than one skill involved, developing empathy and understanding for those other skills is a healthy and great thing and can help you be effective as a group, um, more effective as a group, the more you understand one another. Um, and some of my more dramatic examples of that are in, in video game development, where you're literally bringing together artists and engineers uh, and designers, right? Um, because the, the difference in skill is just so great. Um, but, even, but even in mainstream product development teams where you've just got, you know, um, back end, front end or full stack and, you know, QA and UX folks, even there, having better conversations can lead to just amazing uh, breakthroughs and discoveries, discoveries before it goes to market, you know, and, and you're crapping the bed. The third one, the third key outcome is preserving agency. And that's what I mean by, you know, letting, when I talk about preserving agency in development process, every individual on the team should feel that they have a voice, in fact, a primary voice in determining how they're going to approach the work and what, and how big they think it is. Because there's no one, I don't care what project management methodology or, you know, well, I won't name individual, but what software engineering person thinks they've come up with the perfect algorithm to determine how long it should take someone to do something. 
those people, and this, this, this is a thing that goes back to Deming. This goes back to Deming's and Schuhart's work in the 1940s and 1950s. <clears throat> the people who know the most about the work are the ones closest to it because mm-hmm. they are dealing with realities. And this is the problem with hands-off architects, right? They're, they're, they have a, a nostalgic view of how their model, how easy their model is going to be to implement because they're not there on the front line hitting these stupid caching problems or these intractable APIs that were seem to have been, you know, written by um, a water buffalo. And um, so uh, you have to trust those people. And the way that you preserve that agency is to give them that voice. And that's where it's so important to say, outcome, let them tell you about the approach. If the approach seems like, oh gosh, this is bigger than, you know, this is have a, has a greater cost than we thought it would be. Well, can we more, well, let's have a dialogue. Can we morph the outcome? You know, you initially said it had to also include refunds. If people can just do orders and then we could get refunds a month later, would that be okay? Well, yeah, that'd totally be okay. Okay, well, that makes it a lot smaller, actually. Great, now we're interacting, right? Now the people asking for, pe- for outcomes and the people who can do it, we're interacting, we're in dialogue with one another, we both have a voice, and that's more effective than what you see in so much other development process and here's the, you know, and then for the skeptics, right. For the people like, well, I don't care I don't have to, my people don't have to have a voice. They just have to do what I say. What I say to those leaders, to the command and control micromanagers is let's just, let's just put on your selfish goggles for a minute. Um, let's say you don't think that the agency of the individual cares. Well, here's the thing. When you rob individuals of agency, the normal adult human coping response is to detach oneself from the quality of the outcome. If I have no say in how I'm supposed to approach this, and if I have no say in how long that I think it should take, then I am going to do something to cope with this and continue to receive a paycheck. I'm probably going to start taking some recruiter calls. But what I do, the fact that it is you know, going to be uh, a steaming platter of is not my problem because you said it had to be done this way and you said it had to take this long. Well, guess what? That's what this way and that long gets you. Yeah. And you hide it, right? You, you, so you detach yourself from the quality of the outcome. You have to just detach because. And you you hide, right? It's like, I know they're going to freak out about it. So I'm just going to hide it until hopefully I can get onto another team or get another job. And then that stuff can blow up when I'm not here <laughs> and they can deal with it. So that's why, it's, so even if you are one of those <clears throat> titans of industry, um, it really does behoove you to not force people to hide stuff and um, do work that they, they, they know is, um, is garbage. Um, now, the, the four, this is hilarious because I have had to, like recite the four of these for um, almost a decade now. And I guess in the moment I am completely, um, I'm completely blanking on the fourth one. Why is that? Oh, we can oh, make God. it again. That's right. Try to guess. Nur- nurturing critical thought about team effectiveness. Hmm. That is, uh, and I've heard, you know, Bruce has mentioned uh, Esther Derby and retrospectives, you know, a lot on here. The most, uh, in fact, all flavors of agile development process, if you look at the school of process control, the study of process control, um, all of those are different flavors of what 
uh, is classified as empirical process control. And the core pillars of empirical process control, an empirical process control system has to have three things. It has to have transparency, that is visibility into the work and how it's moving through the system and the system is a team. Uh, inspection, the, the ability to inspect that, use that transparency in order to inspect and adaptation. And a, a common anti-pattern that I see in, in Agile and Scrum implementations is that they don't realize that the retrospective and having an effective retrospective at the end of every development cycle that is the inspection and the adaptation. Hmm. So if that's not happening, you're asking for all this transparency with no ability to inspect and adapt. Hmm. Uh, and so a retrospective is not meant to be a, a group shaming exercise of what did we get done? Well, begrudging approval, but what did we not get done? And disappointed dad face, you know, and let's have a conversation in a small room about that uh, or a Zoom for an hour. No, it, you know, it's supposed to be a conversation, the way that I frame a retrospective is let's have a conversation on how we did it being a team, the cycle. How did, I how find did we do it, it fascinating with these things, how it's like the same activity yeah. can be completely different depending on oh my know, Lord. the context yes. in which you do it or the attitude with the goals context that you is have. everything. Yeah, which, which you don't necessarily, goals and beliefs that you don't yeah. even necessarily know that you're carrying around with you. Yeah. And it changes, totally changes the 100 percent the, the, the experience of it. And so it's, and the that's why so much of agile sure. is not good. Yeah, to say a controversial <laughs> or, or maybe not controversial, but yeah, a, a lot of the the majority of what I see in agile situations that I'm you know brought in to help remediate or or improve, they've heard that, you know, recite these mechanics or or even just, I mean, and the tools, oh my Lord, you know, the tools that, you know, tout themselves as, you know, agile project management tools, the, the degree to which they systemically reinforce some of the most heinous anti-patterns uh, that you could have. Um, yeah, tempted to name names. I guess, but I, I guess part of what you're saying is that there's the mechanics, but you have to also understand the motivations that yes. exist or yes. that are there and not admitted and, and try to understand what, what maybe your motivations should be. It's like the mechanics are just the top 20% of the iceberg. Yeah. yeah. Everything else, which is, oh, well, we're dealing with people here and they all come with their own beliefs and motivations and desires. The, and that's most yeah. of what's going to drive this thing. The number of times I have to <clears throat> reiterate the Agile Manifesto's four points, and I use it, I wait until there's a, you know, there's a situation happening, you know, and, and it's like, I'll have one game producer who's like, our JIRA template needs to be like this, and everyone should only interact through tickets and their transitions in a workflow. And I'll reiterate, remember, the first bullet point is favoring individuals and their interactions with one another over processes and tools. And, you know, Eric Evans talks about with domain-driven design is in software, most of us seem to be laboring under the misapprehension that our goal is to eventually develop a system where we won't have to interact with one another at all. Um, <laughs> and that's not the goal. Um, <laughs> um, and with, development in a bubble. With, with um, 
yeah, with, with, when I talk about agile, um, development process and, and effective development process that favoring individuals and their interactions with one another over processes and tools, Occam's to, to use Occam's razor as intended <clears throat> is to begin with the, try the most minimalist, j- just enough, just enough of a structure and a system to allow work to flow through and have it be observable, you know, get that to a point of effectiveness and go no further. Leave the rest of our intellectual and emotional bandwidth to interact with one another and make the thing that we're being paid to come here and make. Let's have most of our bandwidth go there, not to more charts and graphs. If you don't make rules, everything will go off the rails. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And the tight and the tighter... we need rules because otherwise otherwise bad things will happen. Bad yes. Things. You know, it's funny because if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Can't, yeah, you gotta, gotta you can't manage what you can't measure. Um one of the things that has been a uh an insight for me with the conferences is I always thought that they were about sharing technological insights with each other and then realizing that oh it's actually about connection and what we do with like open spaces is we provide the very minimalist structure necessary to get that going and then we step away and let everybody at the conference you know run Mm -hmm. with it and that has taught me like first of all you need to know what your purpose is and then what you want to put in place is just enough to make that happen it's it's our we we have a a discomfort as people spending very much time defining the problem we want to jump to solving the problem and as a result because we haven't spent the time defining we jump to a solution that's based on myriad assumptions that it turns out some of them were, were misguided. Hmm. I think that's part of the problem too, with it, with, with a lot of, you know, agile adoptions, agile transformations. It's, I think transformation is a misnomer for, for the undertaking. It's really more of a transition and how far that transition goes depends on a lot of factors. But um, if the belief is, Oh, put this stuff in, you know, put this stuff in, in our, lack of trust is going to get better. Put this stuff in and um, we won't micromanage as much or micromanagement will be easier. You know, uh, uh, you know we'll have like the what, right mechanics to micromanage better. Yes. Yeah. And it, it, I, I do, I do experience on a pretty regular basis, leadership and, and like engineering management uh, folks who, as they start to, they surface pain points to me. And I'm like, oh, well, tell me more about that. And we keep talking. It's like, you, you thought, you thought this was a micromanagement framework. Oh my gosh. This was, no, this was supposed to be you loosening up. (laughs) Oh my. Okay. Well, let's, let's see where we go from here. Mm -hmm. See if, see if there is change possible. Yeah. I mean, I can see very often you being brought in from management wanting basically better tools for command and control. Yes. Mm Oh, yeah, yeah, that is, mm-hmm. and and the it's and it's you know what I talk about myth of commoditized excellence. There's no small amount of money been made by people applying some of these 
methodologies, mindsets, and approaches as tools for just that. Mm-hmm. And it sucks, but it's real. And I, yeah. It's the, it's the management landscape to, I mean, if you want to make money as a management consultant, invent something that seems to solve a perceived problem it doesn't have to solve it because you'll be gone by the time people figure yes. that out. But you can sell them the dream. That's and that's the commoditized excellence, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's Deming's. You know, give something a name, people expect you to hand it to him in the box, and as long as you're out before they open the box and get to the bottom, um, you're probably going to be okay. <laughs> that's maybe a good place. It, it. I mean, there's tons more we could talk about. Yeah, I see that where seems like. That might be a good punctual yeah. punctuation yeah. to, to, this to was end fun. this session with. I mean, we can Thank talk y'all. to you for days. Yes. I, yeah, you guys you bring this out in me. Yeah, I same yep. here with y'all. This feels yeah. good. Thank you. All right. Thank well, you, we'll have to do this again for yep, sure. Definitely. Let's. All right. Thank you. All Thank right. y'all. Bye. Bye.